Let us pray. Lord, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight, for you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We have come to the next part of our current message series, which is called Mission Possible. And if you've been here for most of these weeks, you may remember a few weeks back, I mentioned what, uh, I think I started with a question with, about what was the greatest event in the history of Christianity, and suggest to you that the greatest event, of course, would have been the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I then went on and said, well, what would be number two? And I suggested, even though we could argue about this, that it would be the conversion of Paul. That Paul, from Saul to Paul, uh, was an important event in the history of Christianity. Well, now that you know one and two, what would be number three? Well, if you paid attention to today's reading, you'd probably guess that it might be um, the story of Peter taking the gospel to Gentiles, because it ultimately shaped the entire destiny of the Christian faith. Let me kind of backtrack the story a little bit and kind of retell it one more time. But in Acts chapter 10, a little bit before the reading, uh, Peter was praying on a rooftop, which was his custom. Uh, it's kind of interesting that Peter was already staying with Simon the Tanner. Now, you might say, well, yeah, so what? Except that, what's a tanner? This is the guy who's taking the old hides off of dead animals and he's purifying. Have you ever been to a rendering plant? Uh, one of my early jobs was to kill chickens and to haul them off to the rendering plant. And I could tell you that when we got within about, well, depending upon whether the wind was coming towards us or whatever, when you got close to Swingle's rendering plant, you knew you were there. At any rate, uh, Peter was already not to be close to any dead animals of any kind, but here we find him staying with a guy who was doing things that Jews should not be party to. But he's up on the roof, which was his custom here along the seashore, and Simon's place was out on the seashore near Joppa, and he has this vision, this dream. And it's a giant sheet coming down from heaven, and in this sheet uh, are all kinds of four-footed animals and reptiles and birds. In other words, every last animal that were forbidden in the Jewish diet. And no doubt when Peter saw this, he about freaked out. But then a voice said, Peter, kill and eat. And of course, Peter's response was, you got to be kidding me. I'm not sure if that's exactly the way it is in the text, but pretty close. Absolutely not. I have never eaten anything unclean, and I absolutely positively never will eat anything unclean. But we know that voice again came from heaven and said, Peter, do not call anything impure or unclean that God has made clean. And then that sheet went away to heaven, but this happened three different times. And three different times he was told to kill and eat, and three different times he said, I don't know if I can do it. And then the third time after it disappeared, there was a knock at the front door. And three men were there, and they had come to invite Peter to the home of a devout Gentile whose name was Cornelius. Now, this too creates some problems for Peter because for a multitude of reasons, Jews were not allowed to enter into the homes of Gentiles. 
they would have considered it to be ritually unclean. To walk into the house of a Gentile meant you would have to go to the temple and go through all sorts of rites of purification. And you were not allowed, if you were in that house, that's one thing, but to eat with a Gentile was even worse. Now, Peter obviously realized that there was some connection between this sheet of animals that he was told to kill and eat and this invitation that he just received, so he agrees to go and see Cornelius. And when he gets there, very quickly, what, Cornelius, what he says to Cornelius is this, Jesus is the answer to the questions that you have. He came to bring peace within. He came to bring peace with others. He came to bring peace with God. He came to show us how to live. And he came to be our Savior. And everyone who believes in that has forgiveness of sin. Now, at that moment, what happened was all heaven broke loose. Can you imagine that? They had Pentecost in a Gentile's house. The Holy Spirit suddenly filled Cornelius and his Gentile friends, and, and believe it, Cornelius would have had the whole family, servants, and everybody in this house, and they began to speak in tongues, and they began praising God, just like Peter and those disciples had done on the day of Pentecost. And Peter looked at that and, and said, these men have received the Holy Spirit just like we did on Pentecost. Clearly, God is behind whatever's going on. So we better baptize all of these people right now in the name of Jesus. And that's exactly what they did. They baptized Cornelius and everyone in his household, which meant they would have baptized his family, they would have baptized his servants, they would have even baptized every child, infant that was there. Now, this lesson here is that the gift of salvation through faith in Jesus this gift of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a gift that's available to all people, people of all nations, people of all races, and not just to Jewish people. Now, up to this point in time, and we're talking about like the year 32, 33 A.D., just a short time after Jesus has gone back into heaven, up to this point, Christianity was really just another branch of Judaism. And kind of like Pharisees and Sadducees and the Essenes, the followers of Jesus were on their way to becoming just a kind of another subgroup. They were on their way to becoming a denomination, if you will, of Jesus. But God didn't want Christianity to be kind of a sub-denomination of a bigger group. He had a plan, and like the Bible says, God has plans that are far bigger and better than anything we ever come up with. That's why Jesus said in John 3.16, what? Go into the entire world. God so loved the world, not just subgroups, not just denominations, not just certain churches, not just certain people who practice certain laws, but God loved the entire world. That's why he gave his only begotten son. Now, if you read the Old Testament, and you really should, from Genesis through Malachi, you're going to find out that God did have a special relationship with the Jews. He had a very special relationship with the country of Israel. They were his chosen people. But by the time Jesus got around in the first century, Jewish leaders made this big mistake of thinking that they were God's exclusive people, that God somehow loved Israel more. In fact, they believed that God loved Israel, that God loved Jews and Jews alone. Now, that might strike us as funny. 
But I grew up in Seward, Nebraska. And in Seward, Nebraska, you were either Lutheran or you kept to yourself. Uh, it wasn't that we didn't think that other people in Seward would eventually go to heaven, although we had suspicions. We were pretty sure that in heaven there would only be Lutherans, and probably Missouri Synod Lutherans. That's why I always said when we get to heaven someday, the Lutheran room won't have windows. That way we won't freak out and see that other people are actually there. <laughs> but this is the way it was. They thought only Jews, that, that Jews, Israel, were special people. And so for this reason, they considered everybody else to be unworthy. They looked about everybody else as being unclean. And even though there were men like Cornelius, who was a Gentile, he was a devout Gentile. In other words, he believed in God as well. Uh, he was still a Gentile, and he would always be a Gentile, and he would never be, quote, one of us. That was their way of thinking. See, the earliest Christians, you know, when Peter preached that sermon on Pentecost and 3,000 people joined what we call the Christian church, these folks were all Jewish, quite naturally proud of their Jewish heritage. When they embraced salvation through Jesus the Christ, they didn't stop being Jewish. They continued to follow their dietary laws. They followed the rituals, while at the same time they followed Jesus. Some of you may remember uh, back around Lent, we had Greg Savitt with us from Chosen People Ministries. I mean, Greg is Jewish. He practices many of the Jewish traditions to this day, and yet he's a Christian. But the attitude among them was that if a Gentile wanted to be saved, they needed first to convert to Judaism. Then they needed to be circumcised. Then they needed to accept the dietary laws of the Jews. And then, and only then, would they actually be received by Jesus and would be saved. But if you read God's Word, and again, you should, that's not part of God's plan. God wanted to make it clear to everyone that Jesus came into this world to die on the cross for the sins of all people, not just Israel. All people. Salvation is possible or available to everyone who has faith in him, no matter, you know, as they say, whether you are red or yellow, black and white, they are all precious in his sight. You don't have to convert to Judaism first. You only need to do what? Repent of your sins, accept Jesus as Savior and Lord, You'll have a new life in him, period. Whether you're circumcised or not circumcised, whether you wash your hands in a certain way or not, or whether you eat pork or not, or whether you work on Saturday or not, it doesn't matter. You are saved, how? By grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ. This brings us up to chapter 11. This story has a message for us today as well. It's about what God expects his people to be. It's what God expects his church to be. And so we're going to look at this text, and in order for us to go beyond just being a, a nice little itty-bitty church here, you know, on Texas Boulevard in Texarkana, Texas, you know, more than just being some little holy huddle, uh, you know, we pray that the Spirit would enable us to become agents of change, not only in our community, but in our church and in our lives and wherever God chooses to place. And we kind of, but in order to do that, we've got to break through some barriers. 
And so that's what I want to talk about this morning that, that show up in the text. Barriers that we need to break. Here's the first one. First of all, we need to break through the not one of us barrier. Now, when the church growth movement uh, began back in the 1960s, and maybe some of you have never even heard about that there was a so-called church growth movement in the 1960s, if you were in the seminary during that time, they were telling you that there were certain sociological factors common to growing congregations. They said, if you want to be a growing church, you've got to follow this one basic principle. And one of these identifiers was that all growing churches in America, all growing churches in the world, they said, would be homogeneous. Now, you say, well, what's that mean? Well, homogeneous just means that they fit primarily into one primary cultural group. Now, when I first heard about this, you know what crossed my mind? Being in a high school choir tour, stopping in Wichita, Kansas, and walking into the courthouse to use the bathroom and seeing white and colored toilets, which made absolutely no sense to me at all as a 17-year-old high school kid. And it was like, what, we got to have a church with this sociological group and this church for this sociological group and whatnot. And so they, they were teaching you that if you want to grow your church, you had to develop a target audience to attract the, only the people that you wanted to attract. Nancy may remember a little story uh, about a mission church that was in the area where Lord of Life was that didn't grow very rapidly, not like they thought it was. And one pastor said, well, the reason was the mission church didn't grow was they didn't attract enough good-looking people. And it was like, what? <laughs> and this pastor, in all honesty, said, well, there were just too many ugly people <laughs> who came to this church. And when other people came to the church, they didn't want to join them. And again, I'm just like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Now, I'm going to tell you that back in the 60s and the 70s, that may have been true that churches that were growing were what we called homogeneous. But I don't believe, first of all, that's the case anymore. And I'm not so sure that that's very biblical. I mean, today, if you study churches that are making a difference in their communities, you're going to find diversity not only in the pews, you're going to find diversity in the leadership structure, you're going to find diversity in the way that people do things. I mean, great churches do not have a us-versus-them mentality. Great churches have a we're all in this together. Everybody is welcome. Doesn't make any difference who you are, where you've come from, what your background is, what you've done before, you're all welcome. And that's why, you know, if you read this text, and if, if Peter were here today, Peter would tell us, if this church, this one right here, is going to make a difference, if this church is going to make a difference, we have to realize that there is no group of people, there's no type of person who is not welcome here, there is no person or type of person or whatever who isn't one of us, there's no one in this world that does not fit in. Now, our natural instinct, I know, is kind of to be around people who are like us, but we are not to be led by our natural instincts. What are we to be led by? We're to be led by the Spirit of God. In this church, 
there's no such thing as not one of us. This church has got room for everybody. I can prove it. You welcomed me. Here's the second barrier. We need to break down the let someone else do it barrier. One of the things I really love about this story is God's timing. In fact, as I read the Bible, I love reading the Bible. Sometimes God is really funny. I don't know if you ever, ever thought of God having a sense of humor, but some of the stories are really funny. Some of the stuff Jesus says is really funny. Uh, but more than anything, I'm always struck by God's perfect timing. I mean, Peter is talking about seeing this sheet filled with animals in one chapter. And he said, this happened three times and it was all pulled up to heaven again. And in the very next verse it says, right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. Just like that. See, as soon as God gave Peter this revelation, he gave him an opportunity to put it into practice. Now, in the same way, uh, I, I can assure you that when God teaches you something, he's going to give you a chance to do it. I mean, I've often wondered in my own life why I was learning this or why I happened to stumble across this. I think it was just God's way of getting me ready to do something, maybe something I hadn't even thought about at the time. I mean, you can always be sure that sometimes what God calls you to do well, he's going to prepare you, and guess what? Sometimes he's going to call you to do some things that will go against the grain of what certain people expect. Now, i got to tell you, not everybody's going to like what you do, even though you sense it being a call from God. There are folks like that all over. But I really admire what Peter did next. When he was invited to a Gentile's house, when he was invited to Cornelius' house, he could have said, well, corny old boy, you know, as you know, I really can't, uh, I can't be seen out in public with you Gentiles, and I, you know, God forbid I'd ever go in your house, and you may be cooking up something in the house that came out of that sheet, which, you know, I'm never, you know, and, and oh, by the way, I don't want this to ever get back to synodical headquarters. I'd like to help, but my hands are tied. He could have said that. Now, of course, if he did, I'd suggest to you that it would have made him a bureaucrat. <laughs> it made him a politician. And I think the bottom line is that God cannot and will not use politicians. That's just the way I feel. I don't think churches can grow with politicians in charge. It's got to be God in charge or no one. That's why some denominations, by the way, today are, are dying. It's because of their structure, which is put binders on the Bible. They're running by, being run by people who really don't lead using God's Word as their guiding tool. But thank God this was not the case in the early church. I mean, Peter knew that going into the house of a Gentile, he was going to come under fire. Chances are he was going to be called to Jerusalem and appear before the leaders of that church, but he did it anyway. Because why? It, because it was the right thing to do. It was the godly thing to do. It was the scriptural thing to do. I mean, you may remember back in chapter 5, he told the Sanhedrin, when he was told never to preach again after healing that guy, the lame guy at the temple, he said, I must obey who? God 
rather than men. And he was prepared to say that also to the church leadership in Jerusalem. Now, thank God this wasn't the case in the early church. Peter knew that coming to the house uh, was going to cause him some problems, but the leadership kind of fooled him, really. And this is why Peter is such a great leader. Now, was he a perfect leader? Absolutely not. But he was not afraid to challenge the status quo. Now, I've been around the block often enough in almost 48 years of ministry to tell you that there are going to be times when God gives you individually or sometimes your church collectively the opportunity to become an agent of change somewhere. And at that moment, sometimes you are sometimes forced to stand and make a choice. Do I stand up and do what is right, or do I just play it safe and go along with the group? Do I just go with the flow? I was at a pastor's conference a week or two ago in Austin, and somebody was commenting about how there aren't really very many vacancies in churches in, in our district today, that pastors are pretty content to just kind of stay where they're at. And one guy at the table said, well, i got to tell you, in this day and age when if you lose a job and um, it's going to be hard to get one, he says, I'm not going to do anything that ruffles the feathers in my congregation. And I kind of thought, well, that was kind of sad in a way. Now, I'm not saying you ought to intentionally ruffle everybody's feathers, but, you know, when you're going to just kind of go with the flow and just, particularly if God has got a burr under your saddle, you know, you're going to want to do that. I mean, I know in recent years there have been churches that were very criticized for a variety of things. For example, wanting to minister to people with AIDS. Uh, I've been criticized over the years for working with people in prison. I mean, why don't you stay here and do this? Why should we waste money over there? I've been criticized for going on mission trips overseas. Um, there are people who are criticized, churches are criticized because they work with people with addictions or people who work with people who live on the streets. And, and, and in every case where churches choose to do this, there's always some leader of some kind who has the courage to stand up and say, God's called me to do this. I will be his agent of change. Now, all I'm saying is God's plans aren't always popular. That's why we all need that spirit-driven courage to say, I will boldly go where God is leading me, even if no one else has the courage to do it. We need to get past that, let somebody else do it attitude. Here's the third barrier that we need to break. And this is my mind is made up barrier. A lot of people like that in the world today. My mind is, my mind is made up, don't confuse me with the facts. You know, their mind is like cement, all mixed up and set. <laughs> now, you see how this chapter begins again. It says, the apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, right there, they're being business as usual kind of people. These people aren't part of our group. This is not the way we do things here. I mean, what's wrong with the way we've always done it 
before. Have you ever heard that one? One of my favorite quotes is, if it's old, it's gold. If it's new, it can't be true. You ever hear that one? If it's old, it's gold. If it's new, it can't be true. Not necessarily so. Now, you can be sure that whenever God does something new, uh, people are certain to criticize and complain. That's just our sinful nature. There will always be people, including people who consider themselves to be very spiritual, that will oppose what God is doing. In fact, they'll sometimes appeal to history. They'll appeal to tradition. And they might even cite a few chapters and verses to defend the reason they're resisting, although I have found in my own life that they often cite chapters and verses out of context and almost always uh, never based on the whole counsel of God or what God says in his, his whole word. But there is something very unusual that happens here. In, in, in Acts 10, that it happened in Acts 10, the leaders could, in Jerusalem couldn't ignore it. Uh, you know, Peter did the same thing in Acts 10 that he did in Acts chapter 2. The leaders were all there the very first time. They were all gathered together in the upper room praying. The Holy Spirit comes on them. Each person was filled with the Holy Spirit. They began speaking in other languages they never had spoken in before, and they began praising God. It was so real, so powerful, so miraculous that these men knew that they, what they had just experienced came through the hand of the living God. And so what does Peter say in this chapter? Guess what, guys? You're critical of me being in the house of the Gentile eating with him. The exact same thing happened to you at Pentecost. The same thing that happened to you at Pentecost happened to these guys in Cornelius' house. And then in effect he said, don't take my word for it. I've got six witnesses with me. I've got six other Jewish believers who saw this. They were there. And then Peter goes on to say in our text, So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? Now, this is what the really cool part of this story is. It's what the Jewish leaders did. It's absolutely amazing. Verse 18, When they heard this, these are the Jewish leaders, they had no further objections, and they praised God, saying, So then... God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Wow, that, that's, pretty, that's pretty cool. Uh, if, if any of you ever watched the Colbert Report, Stephen Colbert, uh, he's Catholic and he was a little bit dismayed that the Pope this last week said that, we gotta, that God even loves atheists. And Stephen Colbert said, what? The next thing you're going to do is tell me that God will actually redeem Lutherans. <laughs> well, you know, God can bring anyone to repentance. Now, here's what happened. The church changed. I mean, nobody died. Nobody keeled over. Nobody fainted. They moved beyond the I'm always right mentality and broke down the my mind is made up barrier. They changed, they adapted, and by adapting, they guaranteed the success of their church. God is always going to challenge you, friends, individually. You may miss it. It may just kind of go right over your head. God is always going to challenge his church. God will always challenge this church to think a new way, 
to be willing to try new things, all within what? Within the context of the authority of God's Word. Now, I think you all notice the exclusion of the Gentiles was never based on Scripture. In fact, the exclusion of anybody from a local church cannot be found anywhere in Scripture. It was based on a historical misapplication of God's Word. We don't ever want to do that. We want to be faithful to what God teaches us. We want to be faithful to what the Bible teaches us. And we want to challenge anything and everything that is being twisted and manipulated to circumvent the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, what happens when you stand up for the Word of God? Well, there are going to be times when you're going to be very unpopular. I can tell you that. Been there, done that. I mean, preach in a liberal church and defend life in the womb. Preach in places like the West Coast and talk about the sanctity of marriage between a man and a woman. You're not always going to be very popular when you stick with God's Word. But you know something? When you defend God's Word, God has a way of confirming His Word. When we are faithful to what He's called us to do, the results will speak for themselves. Now, what are results are those? Well, it's very simple. God will be glorified and lives will be changed. See, that's why we as individuals and we as a church, we need to explore the possibility that maybe we don't know everything there is to know. Uh, we need to explore the possibility that some of our strategies and some of our programming and some of our methods of outreach just aren't taking us in the direction that God wants us to go. We need to explore the possibility that God is challenging us to open up doors that we've never even thought of before to open. See, Peter's uh, meeting with the Jewish leaders was a defining moment because they made a courageous decision to put the obedience to God and faithfulness to his word above everything else. Now, I said before that this shaped the destiny of the church, but maybe it didn't. Maybe it didn't really shape the destiny of the church as much as it shaped the destiny of their own lives. See, I have a feeling that God was going to see this plan put into action one way or the other. The question is, would these people be willing to go along for the ride? I'm not a prophet. I can't look down the road. I don't generally see visions or whatever, but I am absolutely positive that God's got a plan for this church. God's got something out ahead of us at First Lutheran Church. Uh, he'll see to it it happens one way or the other. The question is, are we willing to go along for the ride? Every once in a while I see the bumper sticker that says, God is my co-pilot. <laughs> I want to stop the car, rip it off, and say, get in the passenger seat and let him drive. God is not your co-pilot. God is the driver, period. Get in the back seat, enjoy the trip. See, friends, it's not a question of whether or not God wants to move. I mean, God, I don't know, I think of Katie, who's been here a year now. I have no idea, dear Katie, what, what God's got in store for you the next three, four, five years. But I can tell you, I'm going to pray for it, that God, God's probably got something that's you may, when you first learn about it, is going to be like, really? Hmm. 
this is what God wants me to do. This is God how, God, how God wants me to do this. Well, it's not a question of whether or not God wants to move through you. It's a question of whether or not you're willing to be moved when it happens. I pray that when the time comes, you will be moved. I, I pray that for this church. God's got something in store. God's always got something up his sleeve for churches. And guess what? God's going to get it done whether you want to go along for the ride or not. I just pray that when it comes, you'll go, let's go. It's a question of whether or not we'll break through barriers to become a church or to become people that God called us to be. I kind of summarize it this way in three different ways. Uh, you know, we need to break through the uh, not one of us barrier so that every last person who walks through the doors of this church, who enters into our life, wherever it may be, knows that they have a home here. And I'm so very thankful that uh, this is such a welcoming place. Uh, I, I, have, I have not witnessed at any time where I think that people who are visitors or guests were ever made to feel uh, unwelcome. And so I, I just thank God for such a great group of people. But we need to continue to not only welcome those who do come, but perhaps go out and... Uh, to break through the let somebody else do it attitude uh, and instead just get it done. Get it done. I think of a, a guy in a former church who came to talk to me one time and said, Pastor, um, you know the Illinois Youth Center? It's about two miles down from the church. He said, have you ever felt like you wanted to, or that the church ought to be involved in ministry to these youngsters who are imprisoned. And I said, well, obviously you've been thinking about it. I said, I drive by it all the time, and I do think about it. I pray for that prison every time I used to drive by it. And I said, but evidently God has put this on your heart. And he said, yeah, God has really put it on my heart. And he had had a son in jail that I had visited and, you know, God began working on him to have a heart. And he said, well, Pastor, what are you going to do about it? And I said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do about it. Nothing. <laughs> God's placed this on your heart. And I'm not going to tell you nothing, but I'm going to tell you uh, what I intend to do is to knock down every barrier that would be in your way of getting this done. I mean, you obviously have a heart for it. God has called you to do this. Go find more people who have a heart for this. And go see the warden. Now, I don't know how long Don and some of these other people, probably now for 10 or more years, have worked faithfully at the Illinois Youth Center doing everything from tutoring these young men to running sports camps and seeing that they have softball games. And every year at Christmas, um, the church bakes cookies. And I don't know how many, bag, I don't know how many bags of cookies, but they, they give a bag of cookies to every last person in that prison, along with all of the other people who worked there, and we would go out and take 30 or 40 or 50 people from that church, and we would go from place to place and sing Christmas carols with them and uh, preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and give them a, a, a present. And, and out of that has grown into other things where they've gotten involved in the Kairos ministries and other prisons. But see, that's what happens when one person hears God's call and says, I can do this. 
I can do this. I can make a change. See, we need finally to be willing to break through this. My mind is made up, Barry, so we can explore new, new ideas, new avenues for ministry. I've often said, you know, if everything depended upon me as your pastor, you're in deep weeds. <laughs> I don't have all the answers. But you know something? Your next pastor is going to have answers. Your next pastor is going to have questions. Some of them may shock you. Some of them may stun you. Some of you will kind of go, oh my goodness, what did we just do? Some of you will say, finally, finally. May have brand new ideas, brand new avenues, brand new thoughts. And you know, when we, we follow God's leading, then what happens? If we break through these barriers, then what we really do is we get on with what God is doing in this world already. And we're able to make a difference right here, right now, where we are. And I pray God will do that. Amen.